Some of my groups have been together for so long. They probably grow together. Yeah, it's so nice. It's amazing. Like some of them have had 27 babies between the, the eight or nine of them. And they've been together for 13 years. That is so special. It's incredible. Like I love them so much. Hi, I'm Ariel Charnas and this is In House, my podcast about all the happenings in my life. Whether it's fashion, entrepreneurship, marriage, or mom life, you'll hear it all right here on In House. Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of In-House with me, Arielle Charnas. Joining me today is a fellow mom and podcast host. Welcome Dr. Eliza Pressman to the show. Dr. Pressman is a developmental psychologist, parent educator, assistant clinical professor, and co-founder of both Mount Sinai Parenting Center and Seedlings Group. Plus, she's host of the Raising Good Humans podcast. Her goal is to make your parenting journey less overwhelming and a lot more joyful. Hi, Dr. Pressman. Okay. Well, first of all, welcome, Dr. Pressman, to the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Of course. First of all, I don't know. I don't know if you know my cousin Candace personally, but she raves about you. I do know Candace. I didn't know that was your cousin. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, my husband's first cousin, but I'm so close with her and her family now, and she just raves about you. Talks about you all the time. Yeah, she's great. So I, I guess let's start with maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your career and what drew you to working with children. I guess I'm a developmental psychologist, so it's different from clinical, which is so technical and inside baseball, but it just means instead of the lens of sort of pathology and psychopathology and looking for what's wrong to fix it, it's the lens of just social, emotional, and cognitive development through the lifespan. And so developmental psychology informs all the other parts of psychology, like clinical child, where you wonder what should be happening and like, what isn't going right. Right. My perspective is much more about the, the parts of the environment that can bolster development and the environment that I focus on the most is parenting but only because it's the only thing in our control and it makes me feel as a parent, like there's something we can do. Right. Because <laughs> there's so much that we just can't do anything about. Right. If if you didn't believe that before the last couple of years, I think. Yeah. <laughs> convinced the, the last the last folks standing, clinging to control, that is not possible. So that is kind of my approach is thinking about the environment that we can do something about. Right. And I, I actually loved working with children before I became a developmental psychologist. I was doing like volunteer work. And so I thought, and my mother is an educator. And so it was always in the cards and I was going to go into clinical work. But when I started taking the different sort of foundational courses in psychology, I was, it was like blind dating. I just fell in love with developmental psych and I just found it so utterly, it's just magical understanding how we come to be who we are and how much goes into it, especially in early childhood, but throughout our um, young lives and how hopeful it is. So that just nothing is written off as like a, well, I guess like the, the immense capacity of the human being just blows my mind. And then I got pregnant while I was finishing my dissertation. And so my perspective shifted from more 
research where I was planning on working in academia and just being a professor and maybe doing think tank stuff about policy. Then as soon as I realized there were real humans involved and it wasn't just like a con like interesting, um, I wanted to understand how you could apply the, this amazing research to practical experiences of parents. And I think that's sort of how my career went in the direction of working more with parents and my very wise mother. And so she said to me, if I may be so bold, I want to recommend that if you love children, but you're have you're about to have children that you focus on something where you can think about children, but talk to adults. That's so interesting. So that's why I ended up, and I'm so glad you did that because I am so delighted to be around my children because I'm right. not, I'm not burnt out. And I have a feeling when they go to college, I will swap out and I will only want to work with kids and teenagers and stop talking to adults. You know, what's so interesting is that I feel like, you know, because your focus is on the parent, a lot of people like send their kids to therapists and psychologists, which is also totally fine. But, you know, I definitely deal with some anxieties with my daughter. And I feel like what I need to do is to work on like how I handle the situation and how I could talk to her in a better way. I feel like people kind of forget that we we have the biggest impact on them, you know, and if we can learn more like on how to work with them, I feel like that's the best, you know, the best solution. But I don't know, maybe not for everyone. I mean, unless there's something for some kids who have who need more of a whole family approach where they need therapy family needs therapy and there's, right. there's of real course. stuff going on that just needs a, a bigger village. Right. For the most part, it, it is of course on us because with anxiety, for example, it's not that it won't be wonderful for your daughter. It's not that it won't be wonderful over time for her to see that therapy is normalized and that that right. can be really helpful in your own safe space. But particularly with a six-year-old, the younger set, it's really just it's not about taking away her anxiety. It's about giving her tools and ourselves tools to manage the anxiety so that it doesn't become this very scary, awful, bad word that, you know, like we're trying to put somewhere Push else. it away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I agree. So, yeah, I did find that too, that there's so much of what I do is unpacking the experience that the adult is having in order to respond to their child and very little of it like just yesterday, one of my clients who is in one of my mom groups and has been for many, many years, and I love this person so much. She was saying, I think my child needs to see a therapist because this child's having a lot of difficult behaviors at home, but not at school and not in front of anybody else. Isn't that a good thing? For sure. It's a really good thing because it means like, okay, they're capable of functioning in the wider world but something feels safer about, you know, messing up at home, which is ideal. You would never want to hear they're terrible at school, but amazing at home. Cause that says for the most part, I mean, of course there's the exception where the school is doing something terrible, but most of the time it means they're safe at home. They're, they're, they're feeling the safest in the place that they can act out. Right. And so in this case, I was saying, I think that probably just means that we need to sit through this and figure something out. Your child's behavior at home, going to a therapist every week probably isn't going to change that. Right. It may be though, 
as kids get older, they want a place if they're having, you know, if they're struggling and they need a safe space away from parents just to have like, just to not worry about their parents' feelings. Right. Then it makes total sense. But, but the first for, for most of my experience, the first line of defense is what's going on inside of the parents and in that interaction, because that's, you can't control your kids, but you can control your own response. What, what do you do as a parent when you start to feel like you're losing control of your kids? Like as they're getting older, you, you know, the bribes don't work or, you know, like if you finish your dinner, like you'll get this after, you know, you can have s'mores after, you know, something that, you know, gets them to do, do things. So like, how do you deal with, you know, them starting to grow up and kind of have their own agency? Yeah. What do you do? I mean, it's not, uh, it's not us losing control, right? It's what, what do you do in those situations when that happens? I mean, hopefully over time that what we're, what we're going for, even though it sounds heartbreaking, especially if you have a six-year-old, right. but what we're going for is that from birth through 18 years old, particularly in the West, you feel like you have this safe foundation and you have this safe kind of rock, right? That is your, the base, the, the home base but you get to go further and further away from it. And whenever you need to turn around and come back, it's always there. It's here. Yeah. But you feel more and more comfortable going further away until you make your own safe space with, with a real foundation, which is your home. Once you leave the house. Right. So it makes sense that over the years you have less and less control as a parent because Hopefully, if you've been doing it well, your child is like, no, I have my own thoughts and opinions and I know that they're valued. So I'm going to give you those thoughts and opinions and you're still parents. So even if they're older and they don't want to listen to you, you can still have the same. You're still in charge of the household. You still pay the bills, but it becomes more collaborative. Right. Here are the freedoms you're looking for, a child of mine. And here's what I'm comfortable with as your parent. Right. And here's what I think we can work toward as you get better at having freedom. Right. So you can do that with a four-year-old about certain things. And you can do that with a 14-year-old. They're just going to be defined in a different way. But when you collaborate with kids, and it's not that it's it's not a democracy. Of course, there's, there's someone who's really in charge. Right. But it is that sense of, I value you for your your contribution to this household and your thoughts and, and what your needs are. And I'm going to make decisions accordingly. And sometimes you won't like them because I'm hopefully I know better. I'm the parent, but it's that I'm, I'm not making these decisions arbitrarily. I'm hearing. Right. And, And so usually that gets you to a better place because when you have a close relationship and children feel trusted and safe and connected and trusting, then it makes sense when you say, Hey, you can go to this party, but here's the curfew. It's like giving a little freedom, but with with some boundaries. For sure. And and no kid should have the capacity to knock right. down those walls, those boundaries, because otherwise they would feel like this is not safe. Out of control. Yeah. yeah. So when you say that the mom group, that is that seedlings? Uh-huh. Can you talk to us about seedlings and what that is? Yeah. So when I was pregnant with my first child, one of my friends from graduate school who had already finished and she was a was already an assistant professor at NYU, she and I got pregnant at the same time and we kept calling each other 
to talk about research that we read to make the decisions that we were making about giving birth and, you know, feeding and sleeping and all that stuff that feels so, those decisions feel so big in that moment. Right. And we were, after a certain point, we were just like, God, we're so lucky to have each other. How do people do this? It's true. And so we said, let's just see what it would be like to offer like a place for other moms to be able to sit in conversation like this. And then we just, it just kind of grew from there. And we just started to have cohorts by age and neighborhood. Now it doesn't matter. I have a group in Dubai because Zoom is so, you know, phenomenal. Yeah. That was one of the benefits of learning how to pivot work-wise during a time that has been insane. But at the time it was like finding a community of mothers or anyone who's a proxy for a mother. So a single father by choice or a father who identifies more as a mother, like periodically that would be a person in our group. But, but in general, I would say they were mother's groups. Some of my groups have been together for so long. They probably grow together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of, it's incredible. It's amazing. Like some of them have had 27 babies between the the eight or nine of them. And they've been together for 13 years. That is so special. It's incredible. Like I love them so much. It's, it's beautiful and they love each other and they have each other and they have chats with each other, text chats and activities that they do together that that I have nothing to do with. It's been really special. I would, that is the thing that I can't do as much of as I would like to, but it's where I've learned the most. And it's where I feel the most just attached and connected because super proud of it. Yeah, I I am. And during the pandemic, I was like not remotely isolated because I had all these beautiful groups and they had each other. And so I knew they weren't. And it was really great. Are there common like challenges that you're seeing parents face during behavioral development that you like deal with regularly that you could share with us? I think the biggest challenge that comes up is having a mismatch between the the developmental expectation of the parents or caregivers and the behavior of the child. So that's the biggest problem is sometimes the, the thing that feels so upsetting for parents that feels like it has to be fixed is actually a really appropriate behavior on the part of the child as they're developing. And it's just about supporting parents so that they know how to respond. And it's probably much worse with like a second child, right? Because you're always comparing. If you had a great first child. (laughs) True. Very true. Speaking of that, I am a mother of three. Ah. I'm curious for a mother, you know, like me raising three girls close in age, do you have any advice on how to balance the attention and, you know, work with jealousy between, you know, spending time with one or celebrating their birthday and the other one feeling, you know, not as special that day? It's interesting because I see my middle daughter just feeling a little bit more, you know, she's kind of going off on her own today, being a little bit more quiet Mm -hmm. because my older one's getting so much attention, so much excitement around her. So do you have any advice on how to balance the attention between three kids or multiple siblings? That's a perfect question and a perfect opportunity to reframe, which is when you celebrate one child, it doesn't mean that you're right. You're not giving to your others. It's just, it's a day that your kids can learn this really important skill of having to celebrate others and live through, live to tell the tale. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's a really good skill for you 
to practice disappointing your other kids. Oh, it's heartbreaking. I know, (laughs) but it's, and it's a really good skill for your six-year-old to be mindful of the other kids. So So everybody has something to work on. So it's not something you have to fix at all. It's more about, it's that same thing of, it's not really about fixing the anxiety or fixing the unpleasant feeling or making it so everybody has an equal experience. It's more about acknowledging each of their experiences and giving yourself and them the confidence that you know that that's okay. Like, yeah, that does feel, it's hard because you both want to celebrate your big sister. And also it, it doesn't always feel so good to do that. Like I, you can have both of those feelings at the same time. That feels so validating to know, right? Like you could be jealous and love someone like those are two, you know, you don't have to be ashamed of that. And it's funny because it happens when you're older too. Like for example, I had, had my younger sister on my podcast. I'm one of three girls also, which is interesting. Yeah. (laughs) And we talked about how we both got pregnant together at the same time and I miscarried and she went on to announce that she was having two. And I remember feeling like a mix of of being so excited for her because it was her first, but then also so jealous and angry that she was getting two. And I, you know, it was and we talked about how weird to have both of those emotions, you know, but it's interesting how it starts from such a young age. But it's still something that happens as you're older. You just I don't know, maybe you just know how to handle it better. That's the thing is hopefully you know how to handle it better, but let's say you grew up where you were given like equal of everything and told everybody gets a present on the birthday or whatever it is, then you might grow up and those experiences happen and you don't feel like you can handle it because it feels heavier and bigger because you didn't get inoculated from that. And so you want to inoculate kids so that the feelings are familiar to their body so that when they get them, it doesn't end the world. Right. And that the only way to do that is to believe it yourself. And the only way to believe it yourself is to get through the experience of the exact pain you're feeling watching your little three-year-olds feel kind of sad because she's not getting attention today. Right. And it's funny because when you're, I feel like, young, you really don't understand that it's not going to end the world, you know? Yeah. So the only way to know that, the only way to believe that is to get up the next day and see that you're still going. So true. Even for adults, but more for kids. Feelings feel permanent in the moment. And so every, even adults, you have to tell yourself when you're suffering, this is right now. This is just right now. I have to remember this, that, you know, emotions come and go and there's just, they come and they go and they come and they go and they never stay in one place. And the only way to buy that is to live it. Right. And when you're out of it, you see it so much more clearer. I hear so many mixed things on how to discipline, not to discipline, don't punish, don't do time out, all of these conflicting answers. So what's your advice for parents on diffusing situations like a tantrum before they get to that point? I guess let me start by saying discipline just comes from the Latin root teach. So it really is, you always are teaching. So discipline is always a positive thing to do. It just has, it needs better marketing. (laughs) And so do some of the strategies. It's very tricky with Instagram and I'm, I do it too. So I'm not 
I'm, I'm not knocking it. There are many benefits, but the, the messages out there are very like, this is the way, or this is the worst way. This is damaging. This is not for the most part. It's in the eye of the need of the parent. So like, do I do timeouts at home? I do not. Do I believe that they are going to destroy your children and make them feel like they're unloved? I do not. I don't have a situation in my household. I mean, my kids are older now, so it's irrelevant, but I guess what I'm trying to say is there's a lot of like very Western decisions, very European Western decisions about discipline in the United States. I'm basically saying very white parenting Yeah, that says this is how it should be. Let's be honest. There's no, first of all, there's no way, like I, I, I read things all the time on what to do or what like you should do. I can't not yell sometimes. Like I can't help it. Like if I'm like pushed, your buttons are pushed. And by the way, that's not even socioeconomic or, or cultural or ethnic or anything. That's just like human, human <laughs> can't be told they like, I mean, sure. Unbalanced. Try not to yell. We right. all know that that is not right. yelling never works necessarily. But if you're in a stress response, if your child's running across the right. street, of course, yeah, and they're going to get run over, you're, you're going to yeah. grab them and right. you're going to yell because you're human, very scared yeah. for their life. The, the only reason that I, I say all of that is that sometimes the sort of gentle parenting, conscious parenting, mindful parenting assumes you have one kid, you have lots of money and support. You have lots of chefs. You have lots of right. like things in your life that you don't have a job. Like it just assumes that everything is set up so beautifully for you that all you have to do is come to your beautiful, bathed, delicious smelling kid and put them to bed. It's frustrating to hear things like that. It's frustrating. You know, like a lot of these things that I read, they say like if your child is having a me- like a serious tantrum and a meltdown, like you need to go and hold them and hug them and say how much you love them and that you're here. And it's like, I've, I'm not going to lie. I've, I've tried, I've done it because I'm like, okay, this is the best way to make them grow up and feel like, you know, mommy's never going to abandon them if they're having, you know, yeah. scary feelings or, tantrum. but like, sometimes I'm like, there is no freaking way I'm hugging my child right now because they are driving me crazy. I need to like separate myself and like, take a deep breath. Like how like that's not something that you can just do every time. So I I mean, it, it's not going to hurt my kid. Right. If I'm not going to go and hug them when they're having a crazy meltdown for no reason. Well, obviously, there's reason, but there's always reason. Yes. Well, I, so I think there are two things. One, there is always there is not always, but there's often sort of like feelings underneath behavior that you do want to figure out. But sometimes in the moment, if you have three kids, you cannot go and say, you are safe. I love you. Mommy loves you. I am here. I can hug this out. So that's, so yes, if you have one three-year-old who's having a tantrum and they're really struggling, especially if they just threw something at the other one who's hurt, you right, know, and it, right. You have to comfort the other one. So I, I would say we know a few things about discipline. People don't learn when they're completely upset. So they're in a stress brain, meaning their alarm bells are going off. They can't hear you. They're not learning, which is why yelling doesn't work. It might blow off steam for you, so you might do it. But if you were going to hit, I'd rather you yell. Ideally, you yell into the 
you know, a pillow to get your frustration out. And then you say, you take a breath and then you go, you back. go back. And so if like the, the idea is if you ignore a tantrum that a child could feel like they're not allowed to have their feelings and what if they need you and they need help right. regulating. But if you have another kid, so you can't go to them, the, the next best thing is to say, I understand you're having those hard feelings and you needed to get all that out. And I had to be with your sister because she was hurt. And we need to figure out what we can do when we're really upset without hurting anybody else. And I love you and all feelings are welcome, but those behaviors are not welcome. And that's all. Right. When we all like read these things on social media or here on podcasts, obviously you want to try because you, you, you hear that these things are, you know, a great way to teach your kids that they're loved no matter what they do. And you're always there for them, but like, it's not going to ruin them if we no, no, mess no. up once in a while. Right. Like, I mean, I think as a parent, you want to know, like we want to try, but you want to think of parenting the way you hope your kids think about anything for themselves, which is mistakes happen. Situations are untenable. We lose our tempers. We don't respond perfectly. This is, and we get out, right. We get out the other side. We talk about it. We move on. Like if you can't get a B in parenting, your kids are going to think they can't get a B in anything. So write those moments off as like, yeah, I blew it today. I lost my temper with this one. I didn't soothe this one. This one was you know, destroying the pillow. But I'll try again tomorrow. We'll try again tomorrow. Right. And like, that's going to happen every day. And if you're hard on the, the, when you're nasty to yourself about what kind of parent you are in that moment, your kids hear it. Like they might not yep. actually hear it, but they feel it. And so that will be the same way they treat themselves yeah. when they mm-hmm. make a mistake. So I would really encourage, like, of course, try to do, try to do the thing that makes the most sense for your family at that time. Mm -hmm. Try to always take a breath. I always think of like the, if you, I I moved to California, we live in a house. I have an alarm. When you walk in the house, the alarm goes off after a certain number of, you know, beeps and you know, the passcode. I really, Mm -hmm. if you think about your parenting as I have to know my passcode. Because I have a certain amount of time where I have that warning beep, like I am about to go off. Yep. What can I do to get that passcode so that I don't blow it? Like I don't flip out. And so that's really good advice. The yelling in the pillow thing. That's one of those passcodes. Like, if you need to yell. That's great. Like I feel like that would, if I could just walk away quickly from the situation, just get out that steam. And then I, like, I feel like I'd be a new person going back to the situation. Well, so you need to feel comfortable that whatever makes you punch your passcode so that you can, so the alarm doesn't go off, that's going to serve your kids more than if you respond right away. Right. Because responding right away is just a reaction to an emergency. If there is no tiger chasing you, like if you do not have imminent danger, you can go in the other room, take your deep breaths. You could take a bath for all I care, you know, like whatever it is, or you could just yell into a pillow because it's not realistic to do much more than that. Right. But you just have to figure out maybe there's a song that always, that was like your wedding song or something that always makes you laugh. Something that calms you down. And you're yeah. just like, you know what? I have a 30 second version of that song that I have on my phone or a 10 second version. I'm going to play that. 
then I'm going to deal with what just happened. And by the way, you could do it all. It doesn't have to be a secret from your kids. Self-regulation is highly correlated with parent self-regulation and how parents show the way they experience self-regulation. So if every time your kids are kind of blowing it, driving you crazy, they see that you're like up, I am feeling those feelings. I'm hearing that beep. I am like, my body is bubbling over. Here's what I'm going to do. And you guys are going to be really glad. I'm going to do this. I'm going to count my fingers one to 10. I'm going to listen to this song. You know, when this lovely day is playing, that that means like, I just need something to make me smile. And then I'm going to look at the situation again. If you need to hold bodies away from each other, because they're going to hurt each other, Right. Literally physically hold the two bodies. Say, guys, I'm I'm holding you. I'm not responding right now. Hold <laughs> on. I have lovely day in my head. I need to do that just a second. <laughs> because that's gonna model for them like yeah. before you do anything, you need to take a breath. Yeah, you do. You need and breath is the pause that pushes the passcode to your alarm system. We need to do a part two because I'm being told we have to wrap up. But before we do, can you share with everyone, with the audience, um, how they can keep up with you and follow you? You have a podcast, your Instagram. Can you share those? Sure. I have a podcast called Raising Good Humans because I think we're all just trying to raise good humans. That's (laughs) all. I have an Instagram Raising Good Humans podcast, and I try to acknowledge that not everybody has time to sit through the whole podcast, even if it's on double speed. And so I try to bring pieces of it to Instagram with the caveat that all of these social media outlets kind of give you a partial picture. And so it can make, if it makes you feel worse, I always feel like, yeah, if you're reading an article and you feel like I'm now a crappy mom, then I'd rather you not read it. (laughs) And I have a subscription to uh, drlisa.bulletin.com. And I just started a community there. So starting next week, we're going to be meeting to do live conversations. Like I wanted to make those mom groups a little bit more expandable. So we'll see if it works. It's kind of hard when it's not tiny. Right. That sounds amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. And thank you to all the listeners out there. Please come back for more as we welcome some new guests to the podcast. You can reach out to us with any questions or who you want us to bring on next. DM us on Instagram at Something Navy. See you next week. That's a wrap for today's episode of In-House. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with more thoughtful discussions and amazing guests. Make sure you follow on Spotify and Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode. And of course, follow me at Ariel Charnis and at Something Navy. See you next week. <laughs>